This morning, we're going to begin a series of lessons on the life and times of Elijah and Elisha. You know, as you begin to try to make your plans about what you want to preach, you realize there's some things that you have preached about frequently. Then you look and you realize there's some things that I have not really preached on frequently. In fact, maybe not even at all. And so I want to first draw attention to the fact that there are what we sometimes refer to as the writing prophets. Those beginning with the book of Isaiah, going through the book of Malachi, these were men whom God called to various places at various times, and their prophecies were written down so that you and I could be able to read and study. And we've spent time in our Bible classes we spent time in our Sunday morning, Sunday night sermons studying the prophets. However, there's another group that's often referred to as the preaching prophets. These are men like Elijah, Elisha, Micaiah, and others that have delivered messages from God that were just as powerful, just as important, But they did not provide a written record. We need to study these people. Their characters many times were larger than life. I know as I read through my Bible, and I read about men like Elijah, and I see how the Bible upholds him and his character, how that it appears to be that he's a man that we just can't live up to his station and stature in life. But if you'll remember just a few moments ago, as Brother Norman read, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. That is, is that he had the same sorts of failures. He had the same sorts of things that were going on in his own life. And yet God called him and did great things through him. And so we're going to begin this series. And I want to begin this first lesson on Elijah from 1 Kings 17. So if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them there to 1 Kings chapter 17. And we're going to talk about a powerful and peculiar prophet. And we're going to concentrate on the provisions that God made for him in chapter 17. The three ideas that we're going to approach is, first of all, the context. Let's see where Elijah falls in the story of Scripture. Then we want to concentrate for just a few moments on the content of 1 Kings 17. And then finally to end with some concepts to live by, some things that you and I need to be thinking about as we live our daily lives. Let's begin first of all with seeing the big picture. You remember you had Saul, David, and Solomon as the kings of the United Kingdom. When Solomon arose as king, you would think that he would be able to do a great work and lead the people in a right way, but in reality, he introduced idolatry in a major way among God's people. In chapter 11 of 1 Kings, verses 5 through 8, He went after Ashtoreth, the god of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did his father David. He built a high place for Chemosh, the abominations of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem. 
And for Molech, the abomination of the people of Ammon, you see, Solomon really became an idolater. But if you'll remember, right after Solomon, there was Solomon's son Rehoboam in the south and Jeroboam in the north. Rehoboam was a man, again, of great potential. And he asked for the advice of the older men and they said, be a servant to this people and they'll serve you all of your life. The younger men said, no, crack down on them hard. Tell them that you're going to make their burden even more difficult. He followed the advice of the young men and the ten northern tribes said, we're going to follow someone else. They followed Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and many of us, when we read about him in Scripture, think about this was an awful man. But do you realize in chapter 11 and verse 38, God told him that it shall be, if you heed all that I command you, walk in my ways, do what is right in my sight, to keep my statutes and my commandments as my servant David did, then I will be with you and will build you an enduring house. You see, Jeroboam had the ability to lead God's people, but he again, like Rehoboam, took bad advice. In chapter 12, verse 28, Therefore the king asked advice. We're not told from whom the advice came, but it says that he made two calves of gold and said to the people, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel. And so not only had Solomon introduced idolatry among them, but here comes Jeroboam and these northern ten tribes become pure idolaters. They're not worshiping God and idols. They're just worshiping idols. Now, if you want to fast forward 50 years, one after one, you've had awful kings of the northern kingdom. And thus God raised up Elijah the prophet to address the sins of the northern kingdom. And they worshiped and served the Baals. You may remember that the king's name was Ahab and his wife's name was Jezebel. And Jezebel had 450 prophets of Baal and 400 of the Ashtoreths who sat and ate at her table. Lord willing, next week when we study chapter 18, we're going to see a great contest that took place on top of Mount Carmel. But when you hear the term Baal, so many of us have in our minds that there's just one of these gods called Baal. But in Judges chapter 10 and verse 6, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the people of Ammon and the gods of the Philistines. You see, there were many Baals. In fact, if you want to study Second Kings chapter 1, Ahaziah, who is the king that follows Ahab, he falls through the lattice and he's sick and he thinks he's going to die. And he sends to Ekron to the god Baal or Baal-zebub. Baal-zebub. And that's the god of Ekron. The Baal worship has been introduced. 
But he's an, he's an interesting character. As you begin chapter 17, and now let's just focus our content on the content of this passage for just a few minutes. You read in the first verse, And Elijah the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead said to Ahab. From that we learn that he is Elijah. The first part of his name, El, that's for Elohim, God. The last three letters, J-A-H, is from Yah or Jehovah or Yahweh, which means the Lord. So he's saying, God is my Lord. I follow him. He is from Tishbe. If you look at the Sea of Galilee in the north and the Dead Sea in the south and the Jordan River that flows between them, and you go just east of the Jordan River, that's the area of Gilead. It's a hilly, rough, raw, mountainous country. That's where Elijah was from. He just appears on the scene. It's not as if he's been raised to do this job. Here's a man God called him. He's not a professional. He's not polished. He's plain spoken. In 2 Kings chapter 1 and verse 18, So they answered, A hairy man wearing a leather belt around his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. If Elijah were to come into this pulpit, you'd look and you'd say, boy, he's different. He's peculiar. The fact that he was hairy could have been the fact that he was just a rough, raw-looking man, burly with hair flowing everywhere, maybe a large beard. Or it could have been that he was a man who wore a lot of hairy garments. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, Now John himself was clothed in camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. We're going to observe the fact that John the Baptist was a lot like Elijah. In fact, Jesus called him that. In Matthew 11, and verse 8, it's a very interesting statement. as Jesus describes John the Baptist. He said, Why did you go out to see a man clothed in soft garments. Indeed, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What this is saying is about Elijah as well as John the Baptist. These are men that are rugged. They're manly men, if you will. That's the kind of man that Elijah was. He also was a man with a very strong passion. He believed in God. He believed what God wanted him to do was what a person ought to do. And he was a man who would call fire out of heaven. Later when Ahaz, or Ahaziah in chapter 1 of 2 Kings is wanting to know if Elijah will come, he sends 50 men. And when those 50 men arrive, Elijah calls down fire out of heaven and consumes those 50 men. Ahaziah sends another 50 men. And the captain arrives and Elijah calls down fire out of heaven and consumes those 50 men. Ahaziah calls a third captain of the 50. And this man, as he arrives close to where Elijah's at, he says to Elijah, please, I already know what's happened to those two others. Please, please take care that you don't take my life. 
and Elijah spared him. You can compare this to what we find in Luke chapter 9 and verse 54. James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they were traveling with the Lord and they came through a Samaritan village. And when the disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down out of heaven and consume them just as Elijah did? You see, Elijah was a man of strong passion. In Luke 1, 16 and 17, talking about John the Baptist being like Elijah, he will turn many of the children of Israel to their God. He will also go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah. You see, John the Baptist was fulfilling in his preaching the same kind of passion that was exhibited by Elijah. But then you get to the part about his preparation and provision. God's about to put Elijah through some training. And training of God is not always like a person might expect. Some of us would expect, okay, well, let's send him to the school of the prophets. Maybe we ought to give him this kind of training. No, God knows what he wants him to do. And so as you begin, let's look at verses 2 through 7 of 1 Kings chapter 17. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the book Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. And it will be that you will drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Now it happened after a while that the brook dried up, because there had been no rain in the land. When you think about that, a brook, or it's sometimes called a wadi, is a riverbed that dries up in dry season. It's on the east side of the Jordan. Now that tells me where he's from. You see, east of the Jordan is where Gilead was located. The brook Kareth is in his home area. We could put it he's going back home to his home territory, to there learn dependence upon God. He's not going to be able to provide his own water. He's not going to be able to provide his own food. In fact, God has chosen to provide the ravens for him. Just like in Luke chapter 12, verse 24, Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse nor barn, Yet God feeds them. Interesting. You take a bird that does not store up anything. He has his, we would call it, daily bread. Every morning, every evening, Elijah had to learn God provides for me just like he provides for the birds of the heavens. He was also told to hide after he had prayed that it would not rain, and it had not rained for three and a half years, Ahab wanted to kill him. 
And so you're going to go there and hide. You're not going to be found by him. God provided him a place of safety. God provided him a time to mature. And God provided provision to sustain him. You look at Elijah. Here's a man where he's gone, what he's learning. I could compare this to the children of Israel and their wilderness wanderings. God provided for them protection from their enemies. God provided for them water from the rock. He also provided them the manna in the wilderness. Give us this day our daily bread. But second, God sends him then to Zarephath. Read with me now as we pick up in verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and dwell there. See, I have commanded the widow, a widow, to provide for you. So he arose and went to Zarephath, and when he had come to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called to her and said, Please bring me a little water in a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called to her and said, Please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. And so she said, As the Lord... Your God lives, I do not have bread. Only a handful of flour in a bin and a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go in and prepare it for myself and my son that I, we may eat it and die. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as I have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me and afterward Make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, The bin of flour shall not be used up, nor the jar of oil run dry, until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. You know what? God did exactly what he said he would do through Elijah. Now here's something interesting. First he was sent back to his home area east of the Jordan River. Now he is sent all the way to the Mediterranean coast to the city of Sidon. Someone says, well, I don't understand the significance. You see, the wife of Ahab, Jezebel, was the daughter of Ethbaal, king of Sidon. So what he is doing now, he's going to the area where the worship of that Baal originated. God is preparing him. And there he's going to be cared for by a widow, one of the poorest of society. You would have thought that if God was going to send Elijah to the city of Sidon, that he would have found one of the rich people there and said, let him provide for you. But no, God said, this widow, not just a widow, but a poor widow, one who had nothing, almost ready to die. God often chooses the weak and the small to show his power. Do you remember in the book of Judges how God chose Gideon and 300 men to deliver them from the Midianites? God often will choose small things and he chose this poor widow to further teach Elijah the lesson. Now the third thing that was a part 
of this preparation of him. Look with me now at verses 17 through 24. Now it happened after these things that the son of the woman who owned the house became sick. And his sickness was so serious that there was no breath left in him. So she said to Elijah, What have I do have to do with you, O man of God? Have you come to bring my sin to remembrance and to kill my son? And he said to her, Give me your son. So he took him out of her arms and carried him to the upper room where he was staying and laid him on his own bed. And then he cried out to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought tragedy on the widow with whom I lodge by killing her son? And he stretched himself out upon the child three times and he cried to the Lord saying, O Lord my God, I pray let this child's soul come back to him. And then the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. And the soul of the child came back to him, and he revived. And Elijah took up the child and brought him down into the up, from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, See, your son lives. And then the woman said to Elijah, Now I know by this that you are a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. You see, the this widow, her son dies. It's got to be a small child because a child is in her arms. The child is not old enough to do anything, but that's her future. The future that her son grows older and is able to provide for her and himself. You see, not only was there a, a, an emotional loss, but that was her future as well. But he was raised from the dead. In verse 24, Now I know that you are a man of God. You see, there was a lot learned from that. But you see, in my mind, there's a foreshadowing. Just like when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, it's foreshadowing his own resurrection that will be taking place not many days after that. When you see the raising up of this son, the prospects for the future from a poor woman who had little to nothing, this is foreshadowing the resurrection of God's people. That God is going to bring them back, that there's going to be something great in the future. John eleven four, 4, Jesus said that Lazarus' death was not for death, but was for the glory of God. Things may look bleak, but God provides. And so what do we see in this section of 1 Kings chapter 17? We see God preparing, God providing for the needs of Elijah. And what that's going to do is lead us into some things that you and I need to walk away here with. There's some lessons that I need to learn that you need to learn. And the first one is problems often prepare us for greater service. And many times we don't see the benefit until later. Sometimes today I am facing a very difficult challenge. Can I learn from that? 
that will help me to do something greater for the Lord in the future, I always ought to look at my problems to have some potential in them. A second concept that I think we need to walk away is, is that God can use unpolished people to accomplish his will. Not everyone is an Apollos who is eloquent in his speech. Sometimes God chooses men like Moses who said in Exodus chapter 3, Oh Lord, I'm not eloquent. God can use people like Amos who was a sheep breeder and a tender of sycamore trees. He could use an Elijah and God can use people like us. I don't have to be the brightest. I don't have to be the most polished. But I can be an Elijah. A third concept that I think sometimes we often overlook. Elijah prayed for the drought. He prayed to God that it would not rain. And you know what? When it doesn't rain, the creeks and the streams dry up. But they dry up for not only the unrighteous, but for the righteous as well. Now let me give you what I think is perhaps a very current illustration. Our country right now is sick. Our state is sick. Yesterday in Nashville, they had a gay pride parade. Channel 4 News decided they wanted to make um, themselves known that they were one of the sponsors of the Gay Pride Parade. The Metro Nashville Police Department decorated one of their vehicles to show their support for the Gay Pride. The bridge over the river was also lit up to show support for Gay Pride. We're talking about Tennessee. What we often call the buckle of the Bible belt. You see, the truth is, our country is sick. What if you and I pray, God, we need to be humbled. We need something to bring people to their senses. And then God answers our prayer. And God does something that, through His providence, allows our nation to suffer. And see the the error of our ways. Who do you think is going to suffer too? The very people who prayed for the humiliation of a nation that's gone astray. Why you say that that means that this shows the consequences of sin. It shows us the motivation to change. So when Elijah prayed, God, don't let it rain. Elijah had to deal with the consequences of the drought himself. Number four, Elijah saw God provide from sources no one would expect. The ravens? This bird here that does not have a store building, does not have a barn, that bird is going to feed every day, every morning, every evening. 
God was going to use a widow to be able to feed. Often the poorest and the neediest are the ones that step up to help. I can't tell you how many times I've had a younger man come through and say, I want to go do mission work. And as they will begin to tell me where they're going to go to ask for help, they'll frequently say, this congregation, they're large, and their contribution is thousands of dollars a week. And I'll say, that's not who you need to go to. And they'll look strange and like, what do you mean? I say, no, you need to go to the small, poor churches. Because you know who's doing the mission work in our world today? Not the rich churches. It's the poor churches. Just like in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Moreover, brethren, we make known to you the grace of God bestowed upon the churches of Macedonia, that in a great trial of affliction, the abundance of their joy and their deep poverty abounded to the riches of their liberality. Their deep poverty abounded to what? The riches of their liberality. Do you want to know who gives and gives the most generously? Just let Jesus answer the question. Do you remember as everybody was coming into the temple and they were bringing their contributions, as Jesus said, opposite of the treasury? There was a horn there, and I'm sure here's these people coming, bringing their bags of change. It was going into that treasury. All the noise that we're making. Here's a woman, a poor widow lady, has two mites. Oh, you say, I think I'm beginning to see the picture. Often those with the greatest resources are not the ones who are giving. It's the ones who have so little are the givers. But God rewards those who provide. God rewarded the widow at Zarephath. He rewarded her in providing food for her until the rain came. God rewarded her by taking care of her son. Mark 9, verse 41, For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you that he will by no means lose his reward. God takes care of those who provide for his own. What he learned was you walk by faith and not by sight. If Elijah had only thought, well, now I've got to be able to work this out. Lord, how are you going to do this? How are you going to take care of me? That's him walking by sight. But when God said, go to the brook Kirith, there I'm going to take care of you with the ravens and the water, he went. When God said, go to Zarephath, he went. Because he was walking by faith. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 or 7. Not by sight. You can be an Elijah. If you'll let God use you. 
As you read and study through your Bible and you recognize this is what God says, then you need to be like an Elijah and you do whatever God's Word tells each of us to do. Someone says, but I can't do great things. You can do what he did. Elijah was a man of like passions as us, and he prayed. Well, I can do that. I can pray. Can't you? Pray for God's will to be done. You can obey. When you read God telling him, you go to the brook Kareth, he went to the brook Kareth. You go to Zarephath, you go to Zarephath. And God says, you believe and are baptized, you'll be saved, Mark 16, 16. You repent and be baptized, Acts 2, verse 38. Do what he says. Or, you can be a raven. Or you can be a widow and do what you can where you are. You know, I I can see some women saying, I am past the prime of my life. I no longer have the financial ability. I no longer have the, the strength to do what others would do. Or even to say, I'm a woman and I I can't do what men are called to do. But you can do what you can. And you can be a person serving God where you are, just like that widow of Zarephath. This morning, I'm certain that in this audience... We've got some people who need to be baptized for the remission of your sins. I'm certain that it's been going through your mind perhaps for some time. I know what I need to do. I know what I need to do. But maybe it's fear that's been gripping you. I'd like to encourage you to respond when we sing the invitation song. But if you need to be baptized after services... I'll assure you, we'll stay here with you. But I can say this. You need to do what you know you need to do now. You don't need to put it off. It's possible here that you're a Christian and you're living with sin in your life. You know that you are. And you know you need to do something about it. The Lord's invitation has been left We're going to sing the song, Bring Christ Your Broken Life So Marred by Sin. And if you need to respond, will you come as we together stand and sing?